This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatter Nation? Thanks for tuning in and joining us for another episode. If you've worked at one of the larger operators in the US, chances are Chai One has built your company at least one application. So the founder and CEO, Gorov Kondawal, joined us this week to talk about how he recognized the importance of the launch of the App Store back in the day and how guerrilla marketing tactics helped them secure a major partnership with Apple. Gorov was also one of the co-founders of Start Houston, which was pretty much one of the first co-working startup spaces in Houston. Uh, and I know it was at least my first exposure to the startup scene here in the city. So I thought that was pretty cool. Great episode. And I hope you guys enjoy that. We've got a lot of announcements to run through. Uh, you've probably seen that we've partnered with Well Database and we have launched a Yeti giveaway this week. So we're giving away $4,000 worth of Yeti, Tundra 35 coolers and other prizes. However, this isn't a random giveaway. This is actually a competition. But it's super easy. Just go to the website, digitalwildcatters.com, and click Yeti Giveaway in the menu to enter. Now for a big announcement that has been in the works for such a long time. And we are super proud to announce that we've officially partnered with the leading energy investment bank in the space, Tudor Pickering Holt and Company. So as part of that, every episode on the Oil & Gas Startups podcast will now have a short segment that we have collaborated on to kind of bring you some insights from a lot of the research that they're doing in the space, combined with some commentary from us of what we're seeing in the space. So we hope you guys really enjoy that. It's going to be really cool. And let's get right into that. Depending on who you ask, you'll get different definitions of clean and green technology. Industrial tech these days is in many ways both clean and green. So let's go through a few examples of this intersection. Number one, software that increases efficiency through modeling a more appropriate use of resources to achieve the same result. Number two, an industrial Internet of Things system that automates a process, removing the need for on-site human labor and associated energy spend required for it. And this could be uh, heating and cooling for operators, it could be vehicle travel, things of that nature. Number three, an incident alarm system that intervenes more quickly than humans, increasing the amount of avoided emissions or number of avoided spills. We're seeing a ton of this in the midstream and downstream space, uh, a little bit in upstream as well. Uh, number four, a virtual reality system that allows remote training and maintenance, reducing travel associated with any of the greenhouse gas emissions. Number five, a blockchain system that tracks the supply chain of a particular product, ensuring it is meeting certain recycling and carbon footprint standards. Number six, uh, building management systems that reduce energy consumption by optimizing heating and cooling temperatures. Number seven, uh, fuel economy and electric vehicles that decrease the resources used in transportation. You guys should know all about that these days with Tesla. Number eight, automatic energy efficient smart lighting systems that utilize smart sensors who automatically dim and brighten lights depending on the outside light. But no matter how you define energy tech, one thing is going to be very, very clear. Industrial advancement does make a meaningful and maybe more importantly, immediate difference in our carbon footprint. This episode is powered by W Energy Software. You might remember that we had W Energy's founder and CEO, Pete Waldrop, on the show a while back. And you may know that Wildcatter's very own Jeremy Funk, aka one half of the Tripping Over the Barrel podcast, calls W Energy home, and he loves it. You guys know our mantra is evolve or die, and after a year like this, that is now more true than ever. While we love for the industry to thrive right now, you really just need to be focusing on surviving. We all know this industry is cyclical. This isn't the first downturn, nor will it be the last. You need to set your organization up in a way that helps you drive down your GNA cost while improving business agility. 
legacy upstream software like Bolo and Excalibur, you know, they pose multiple challenges for EMP companies. They poor support, expensive upgrades, data integration requirements, overhead cost, and honestly, just lack of innovation. That's something that we've harped on a ton. And that's why we really love the team over at WEnergy Software and everything that they've built. These guys are making huge strides in upstream and midstream. In upstream alone, their customer count has grown by 80% in just the last year as producers are switching from legacy providers to a modern, unified ERP platform that's built on the cloud. W Energy Software will help you do way more with way less by keeping your GNA cost down and dramatically increasing your team's efficiency, which is super, super important. One of my favorite parts is that it's all packaged up into a clean and sleek, modern user interface that is super simple to use. If you want to learn more about how they can help you, just visit WEnergySoftware.com or click the link in the show notes below. Now let's get back to the episode. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. I'm excited about this today. Uh, Gorf, this is our first time actually meeting, but I've known, kind of just seen you on social media and stuff. Yeah, likewise. In particular, I've seen the Chai One headquarters off of, it's off of like Beltway 8, isn't it? Right? No, we're actually in 9 Greenway. Oh, nine Greenway. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody completely different. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard about you guys for a long time. I know a little bit about what you guys do, but I'm really le- excited to learn a little bit more and kind of dive into this today. So when we kind of start off with, uh, yeah, what does Chai One do? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, so the funny thing about asking what you do is, you know, we see companies will say, you know, we have these many employees and these many offices and these many locations. This is all the services we offer, right? And it's like a big yawn because they keep talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. So what we like to talk about is the problem. The problem is that 73% of all digital transformations fail. They fail because only 5% of the features that have been built actually get used. So users don't adopt those features because they don't solve their problems. So problems happen because nobody's bothered to research to uncover what really ails the process. Mm. So 73% of digital transformations fail because of poor user adoption. So what we do is help identify the problem worth solving. Not the one the customer comes to us first and says, hey, build me an application or build me an app. That's not the problem. That's somebody's symptom of some sort of a pain. So we have a team of PhDs in psychology, anthropology, and human factors. We go into the field, whether it's a nuclear power plant or refinery or an offshore rig or a field uh, company or a warehouse, and we observe people. Not just what they say the problems are, but we watch what they do. Do they go back and forth from two desks five times a day? Do they have two different computer systems? Do they have post-it notes all over the computer? Are they using... Um, notepads and spreadsheets and SAP, what kind of issues are they dealing with on a daily basis? We watch and we observe all that. We collect the data. Then we quantify that constraint. What is the cost of that problem? So a customer may come to us and say, hey, I have this problem, and that problem may only yield maybe half a million in value, but it's somebody's cool idea. But when we go into the field and we observe people do stuff, you may find a $50 million problem that nobody really thought could be solved because they just figured it's the cost of doing business. This is how it just has to happen. They just accepted that. Why? So we'll go and then we'll challenge that. We'll present that business case and say, you thought this was the issue. It's not the issue. This is the real issue, right? 
mostly the customer says, oh my God, don't have any, any idea. Can you guys dig into this further? So we then build a business case, then we create the designs, and then we build a solution. So we may take a 10-step problem down to three steps or a 10-step process down to three steps. Then we build a solution for those three steps, take it back to the field, get user feedback, roll it out, and then users are happy. So now the adoption goes to the roof. So this is how we build these digital applications and solutions in what's called product as a service. So there's dedicated teams at Chai One, researchers, designers, developers, DevOps people, project managers that stay with the customer for four, five, six, seven, eight years mm. developing and scaling these products for our customers. So would you guys describe yourself as a, as a product development firm or would you describe yourself as like a digital transformation enablement firm? Or like how do you, how do you kind yeah, of like position? Yeah, great question. The digital transformation is a really broad term. It can mean a lot of things, a lot of people. What we say is we are really building products as a service. Mm. So you have dedicated teams building products for our customers. Now, some people may call them projects because they're internal. They're not like Uber or Facebook, but they could be a field ticketing application for Chevron, mm. right? But we'll take the same view that this is really a product within your organization. It has to, it has to scale. It needs, you know, DevOps. It needs support and maintenance, you know, all of those things. So look at us as a product development shop. So from my experience, that seems to be a lot more extensive compared to just most product dev shops. Usually it's just like they build you exactly what you tell them you want, right? right? Uh, you build that and then uh, it's end of work. Like Correct. there's, there's. He's talking about the psychology, you know, yeah, like you're, you're watching how like people really, behave. really deep and it's ongoing. It's like, can you imagine if they came here and watched me work? Like, man, this motherfucker just paces <laughs> around all day, gets up and down from his desk, makes some memes every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so. Let's kind of go back into your history because it's funny. I didn't even know this until, you know, we talked on the phone the other day, but, you know, you're kind of like an OG founder here in Houston. You know, you did some initiatives back in the day with Start Houston, which, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with Start Houston. And if they're not, we can dive into that. But let's go back even before Start Houston and before Chai, you know, what was kind of what led up to all of this? What led up to starting uh, Start Houston? And then let's unravel that story a bit. Yeah, you know, um, you know, this is great. I can talk for days. Well, but, uh, I can't too, but, so let's but, go. But, but, I, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I'll be brave. So, I mean, my story is a typical immigrant entrepreneur came to the U.S. with no money, had enough money for the plane ticket and the first semester's tuition for undergrad in northern Indiana, small town called Goshen College. Okay. In the middle of Am Amish and Mennonite community. Yeah. That's a separate <laughs> podcast all by itself. Um, and uh, so ran six different companies in college, you know, just to pay the bills, you know, everything from, you know, food delivery companies to pizza delivery to selling kitchen knives for Cutco, which you guys may have heard yeah. of. Yeah. You know, building a software business, um, all amazing things that um, really made me fall in love with entrepreneurship. Just, just the hustle was mm -hmm. so much fun. Um, and then spent seven years in strategy consulting uh, in New York. Um, that was a lot of fun too. But that's kind of where I realized and saw that at scale, large organizations have a really difficult time changing. And when the, the formula for fixing that is always the same, the top-down, consultants in a room, figuring out a solution, giving it to executives on PowerPoint decks, and then somehow it turns into buying some ERP software and then deploying it, seeing this fail, and the next firm comes in, and then the cycle continues. 
So that's where I just was just disillusioned with this whole, you know, circus. And so when Steve Jobs announced the App Store, that was my catalyst. You know, so all these years, all the companies that started, I felt like I was just putting in my 10,000 hours, to quote Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. getting to that stage where when he announced the App Store, like with the next day, I was done. You know, I quit, bootstrapped, and started Chai One. What year did the App Store come out? 2008. 2008. I want to chime in really quickly and say that how big of a monumental moment that was in the history of technology. I was talking to my wife about it the other day and I'm laying in bed and it sounds so stupid, but I'm sitting here looking at my phone and I was like, this is amazing. Like I was thinking back to when I was a kid, like when we had these dumb phones, right? I can look up anything. I can Google anything. I can contact anybody in the entire world. Just like with Google alone, I mean, that makes it worth it. And it's so amazing to me what we can accomplish just with like, a phone, a yep. little, yeah, a little device. Like yeah. I think we take that for granted today, and I like to like stop a thousand and think about like a thousand percent, like how amazing that really is. You know, and it's amazing, you know. And I'd seen that growing up in India. I'd seen how India had gone from no phones to cell phones. Just skipped the landlines completely. Really? Six hundred million people had jumped on Nokia phones and Ericsson phones, right? As I was growing up, and I was like, man, these farmers can now access the weather and look at the stock market, just on feature phones, right? Yeah. So when the smartphone came out, I was like, my gosh, like people do not need to go to work anymore. They can be doing everything on the iPads and iPhones. Yeah. You know? So. And especially now you, you pair that up with, with like the work from home thing. Like yeah. I've actually been working from my phone significantly more lately uh, as compared to just actually cracking open my computer just because everybody's got a mobile app these days, right? Yeah. And they all, you know, kind of saw this evolution between computers, smartphones, and TVs where they all started becoming the same device really, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. you got all the same applications on your TV now and they're all different just sizes and, and the way that you use it. But yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's really interesting to kind of think back to 2008. You know, I tell everyone that was the year I graduated high school. And so I kind of look at my life in two different parts in, t in terms of technology. It was like pre you know, graduation and post-graduation. And I think this is why we've seen such a big adoption of technology in oil and gas is because now all these kids that graduated in 2008, like me, you know, they're 30 years old now and they're taking senior level positions in these energy companies. And guess what? We've lived the majority of our adult life with an iPhone mm -hmm. and the ability to have these seamless apps that you can do things. And then you come into the energy business and it's like, why are we using this? software that was you know, developed yeah. in the early 2000s or late 90s. And that's been a huge catalyst for the adoption of technology in the energy space. And I just, like you said, I think a lot of people take that for granted, mm -hmm. you know, what we have with the iPhone. And it's just kind of, you know, it's cool to hear it, you know, from your perspective. So when you saw that, you know, you kind of had this realization that the App Store was launching, you knew what it was going to be You're like, okay, that's it. I'm quitting. I'm going and doing it. What, you know, what was the first step? I mean, sales. Number one, right? Uh, you know, a lot of people that I run across talk about raising capital and those kind of things. I mean, that was like not even anywhere close to my mind. Simply because you give up so much for so little. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my mentors had talked about leverage. So you got to lever up, you know, in the sense that you got to have something on your side that you can use as leverage when you're going out to, to raise capital. And so um, the, the main thing was the customer is your best investor. Let's just go out and pound the pavement and get and get business on the door. It's non-dilutive money, right? That's right, yeah. I think a lot of startup founders, you know, they look past that. You yeah. Not to give up any equity for that money. No, seriously, yeah. And so, you know, at that time, you know, went to HTC quite a bit. HTC, his technology center was a Rest thing. Rest in peace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 
and you know, right away what I realized was I was just almost broke, startup guy, and having to pay 30 bucks to go to a breakfast. And everybody's wearing suits, right? And I was like, man, this is going to be hard. Like, I can't go to so many and, and not quite sure if I can get a lot of value out of this. And so um, a couple of years in, I uh, realized that there's got to be something different. So I was hosting these meetups at our offices and we would buy the beer and the pizza and just like fill the room. Like, it'd be like 50 people in here talking about JavaScript and .NET and iOS and things like that. And that was a lot of fun. Then I met my friend Apoorva and he had just come back from New York and he said, dude, like you're doing all this stuff here. This is like, a, why don't you do like a co-working space? And I was like, what's a co-working space? <laughs> He's like, well, everybody in New York is in a co-working space. It's LinkedIn, Pandora, everybody's in a co-working space. We should just go buy a building. I said, okay, well, if, I mean, if you find something, you know, let me know. Well, the next day he finds a building, which was Start. <laughs> and he's downtown. It's somebody's bachelor pad that happened to be in a warehouse. It's just a really cool building. And so, you know, we said, okay, let's go. You know, put up the down payment. We bought the building. And then we said, okay, well, I guess now you have a co-working space. <laughs> now what do we do? Well, how do we bring in, the, bring in the people? So Shark Tank was just starting to take off at that time, right? And so we said, well, we can't do what, HTC is doing, you know, most of us don't even own suits, right? <laughs> so we're just going to do the same. We're just going to buy the beer and buy the pizza and we'll host demo days, right? So we'll have startups, you know, submit applications. Apurva, you and I will just like go through the ones that really are silly and let them be. But the ones that are really good, we'll pick four and we'll have them pitch once a month and it'll be free. Anybody can come. We'll buy the beer and the pizza. We'll just pack the room, have a lot of fun. So next thing you know, you got people from Houston Angel Network showing up in a suit and realizing everybody else is wearing shorts. <laughs> They're like, man, like, why don't we get this memo? <laughs> so then over time, that also changed, right? So now you had people coming in, corporate visas showing up, startups showing up, lots of people with dreams in their eyes showing up. Yeah. Right? So actually, I think James Philan uh, made a post about Start Houston the other day, and I commented on Facebook, and I was talking about how that was my first exposure to the Houston startup community was actually through Start Houston. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what East Downtown was. Yeah. And so to me, I was like, I was kind of new back to Houston. You know, I had lived in California for a while. And so driving over to East Downtown, and I'm like, okay, I think we're in the ghetto. It's like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure this is the ghetto. But then I pull up, I start getting closer, and I just see Teslas, <sighs> like on all the side streets over there. And I'm like, okay, something, I must be getting close. And then you go into Start Houston, and you walk in and it was just jam-packed the night that I went the very first time. It was like probably like 150 yep. people or so. There was pizzas everywhere. There was, a, I remember there was a bathtub yep. with a whole bunch of light beer in there just yep. stocked full. <laughs> yep. And yeah, it was yeah, the demo days. And so yep. I remember very clearly there was, a, there was a couple. There was one that was like guy you know, like doing some solar and stuff. I remember Blair Guru from Mercury Fund was on yep. the panel. I remember a yep. couple other guys from like Houston Angel Network were on there. Yep. And it was exciting. You were exactly right. Like the room was just full of like people who like wanted to go out and do their own thing. And I was like, man, this is super exciting. It was super exciting to see it in Houston, you yep. know, because I didn't, I didn't expect it. And I, I wasn't aware that it was happening anywhere else. You know, HTC was kind of on, on kind of a downward spiral at that yep. point. There wasn't a whole lot of events that were going on over there. And this seemed like the first real place where startup founders were getting together in Houston. So hats off for putting that together because oh, I'm man, sure you inspired so like an entire generation of people. Yeah, I don't know about people. that. But a perfect now just having fun, you know, play ping pong and, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, do hackathons, things like that. And we're like, look, if we can, if we can impact the community somehow, it'll be great. But, you know, for Chai One, it was a great move because um, we were able to find awesome talent. Yeah. So the real play for us from that perspective was recruiting. 
you know, so when we would find people would host meetups, so, you know, those, all those .NET, JavaScript, whatever meetups, we'd move all of them to, to uh, start. We looked for people that were leaders in their community. And those people looked for companies that support the community. Mm-hmm. And so it became a really nice mix. You know, so we were able to get, you know, maybe a dozen or so people that, that came through start. That we found a child one, just absolute rock star, amazing people. You know, so, so yeah. that was huge for us. It's funny, you know, when you sit there and talk about the genesis of Start Houston, I mean, it's the same MO that we had over here with Digital Wildcatters, right? You know, we've just kind of, we've done it in a different way and through digital content where you guys, you know, had this uh, this building over in East Downtown and it's still painted Start, it still yeah. says Start yeah. Houston on the side of it, right? The yeah. ro- robot graffiti. Yeah, it's got the robot side. arm. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. if you're ever in East Downtown, you can go see it. It's still up there. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the phone, you know, the ecosystem and the community in Houston. And, you know, you guys had something really good going on there. And, you know, you ended up selling it, right? Because Chai One ended up uh, really taking off. And so you were you were thin on bandwidth and mm-hmm. then a real estate mm-hmm. uh, investor came and bought it off of you guys. But, you know, what do you think made it successful? You know, I, I talk about like our events, like Energy Tech Nights and, People think it's funny, but when I'm like, we got, you know, kegs of beer and pizza and no suits, it sounds like such trivial things, mm-hmm. but those types of things make all the difference in the world. You know, it's like, hey, let's just get a bunch of smart people in the room. We don't care what you're wearing. You know, we just want to have intelligent conversations, have collisions, have people, you know, where you can see the dreams in their eyes, wanting to build things. Is that kind of what you guys are trying to cultivate there at Start Houston? And are you know, those are the things that really made it special? Yeah, you know, I think the, um, I don't know if there was any one like particular secret sauce that made it successful. I think, uh, you know, some of it was, some of it was, was mostly because it was just really authentic. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a VC play. It wasn't like some other play. There wasn't some sort of a, you know, thing for us to extract juice from the audience that was going to be there. It was just purely an authentic like play. You know, the only thing was, there's some desks you can rent here yeah. you know, for 99 bucks at 200 bucks a month, right? Yeah. Which is very, very cheap. Um, the other thing was, uh, you know, the, the financial crisis had happened in 2009. Yeah. And 2003 to 2000 and, um, sorry, 2013, 2017, when we had it, you had Uber and Airbnb and you had all these other tech startups starting to really take shape. Right. They were becoming unicorns. They're growing like crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. And so people were like really intrigued and enthralled with this idea that you can have a phone, you can have a startup and you can build something out of it. Right. It wasn't like, hey, I need, you know, a million dollars to start a business. I could just be a single developer. I can go get something from a cloud service like AWS. I can have an iPhone and I have an app store and now I can immediately make money. Yeah. You know, I have, I have a market that's out there. So there was this idea of, democratization of the tech ecosystem in terms of costs going down, reach going up, consumer devices becoming more prevalent. Mm -hmm. And I think that really made people feel that I can do this. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't need a huge team. I can do it on my own. Um, What was surprising to us was Houston always gets this bad rep that it's not a tech friendly town. Mm -hmm. Go to Austin, go to Silicon Valley, whatever. But we found people coming in from Pearland and Woodlands and Beaumont and like places like that, right? And amazing ideas. 
really smart people. They're like, wow, look, look at this. Yeah. You know, like we didn't even know this existed. <laughs> and I think it really opened a bunch of eyes. Of, you know, people, even the panelists, right? So a lot of the panelists were really accomplished people. You know, Blair, Roberto, yeah. people like that. So when these startups would be on stage and they're presenting their startups, people in the audience would say, that's a guy from Pearland. He started a VR gaming company called Virtuix, by the way. So Jan Gotluk in Pearland took a little treadmill that he built. He was a rice student and he leveraged the Oculus opportunity to build a gaming startup. So now it's like, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of this company, but it's basically, uh, look it up. It's it's called the Omni. Mm -hmm. It's like a Peloton for gamers. Oh, awesome. Okay. They got one of those at, uh, this. you remember at Andretti? It's oh, like, yeah, yeah. It's got like the treadmill and you're running on it and you got the VRs. Yeah, so this thing was like a circular thing. You put on a harness, you attach it to your Xbox or your PS4, and you can have like an Oculus on your head. So you're basically in the game. Yeah. Right? So now you're running in the game, you're jumping, diving in the game, right? Like that company's worth over, like I think they're raising it almost $60 million now, valuation. Oh, wow. Jeez. Right? And they came from Pearland. I wonder if they made that one. At, so have you seen the Andretti go-kart uh, place in Katy? It just opened up before okay. COVID, but they have this VR center and it's just like that. You get in this little circle thing and it's got a treadmill. That's probably it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's probably so the I was like, I was sweating. I yeah. was a little tired from it. It's all but green. Green. Yeah. It's all yeah, green. That's yeah. It. That's it. Yep. Yeah, so it was that that zombie game that we played. That yeah. felt like yeah, that felt crazy, honestly, because yeah. <laughs> you had zombies coming from every angle, and I was like, I gotta run. Yeah, <laughs> we got we we'll be running back. We got video we'll, footage of it. We're gonna have to cut it. Yeah, in we'll on cut the some video footage. And, the, and what's crazy version. about that is that Jan got picked up by um, Shark Tank. He was oh, on really? the show. Oh wow! And he turned down Cuban. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, and then when Oculus was bought by Facebook, Cuban came back to him and on Jan's terms invested. Oh, nice. Love oh, wow. it. And he's here in Houston. He's now in Austin. Oh, he's in Austin. Okay. Yeah. We got to get him on. Yeah, we should connect with him. For sure. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the kind of stuff that was exciting to see. Yeah. yeah. 100%. So you guys, so going back to, to Chai One, so you said you hired your first like 12 people pretty much out of Start Houston. And I know you put a lot of emphasis on sales like really early on, but then there's this whole like psychology component. Did that kind of come in earlier? Or, like how did that fit into like, I'm trying to understand like the first core team of Chai One and like, what was the split? Like, was it all devs and a few sales or mm. did you kind of attack this psychology component really early on? Or was that something you guys kind of figured out later? Yeah. So early on, it was all sales. Um, you know, my brother was in the business with me and, you know, he literally would go up and down, you know, buildings in downtown Houston, dropping off flyers and knocking on doors. And that's just kind of how you had to I do love it. it. Um, and you know, we had made a decision early on that we were only going to buy Apple devices. Uh, we just couldn't afford an IT and, and all of that. So we were at the Apple store buying MacBooks and stuff all the time. So my wife had this idea where she said, look, you know, this is going to be massive with the Apple guys. We should build a relationship with the Apple store people. So she would send cupcakes <laughs> to the genius bar people every time there was a big Apple announcement. Right. And so after the first like year or two, they were like, who's this Chai One company that keeps sending us cupcakes? This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> two, two years of sending cupcakes. That is that is some grassroots That's marketing. Oh, yeah. there. <laughs> and so when when the iPhones would come out, there'd be like lines of people at the Galleria. So our team would show up there with Chai One shirts and we would hand out donuts and water <laughs> to people in line. Right. It's brilliant. These are all Apple fanboys. Right. They could be working at Exxon. They could be working on their own startup. Who knows? Right. Yeah. But we were just just guerrilla marketing. And so, um, so Apple called us one day and said, Hey, we've got the Houston Rockets 
that want to build an app. And they asked us who's a local developer. So they called Cupertino. Cupertino called us. Well, we thought of you guys because you guys are super nice. You guys give us cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> so we built this app for Jeremy Lin, if you remember, right? Yeah. <laughs> At that time, right? So we built this app and Jeremy was in love with the app. Right. So I, I'd like to claim that he came to Houston because of our app, but I don't think that was the case. <laughs> but definitely had something to do with it because he made a comment that this app was like the best thing he's ever seen. And so then Apple was like, this is fantastic. Like, it's good to meet somebody in Houston. So Cupertino sends over a uh, Apple sales rep. They meet with us. They see that we're already talking to some industrial companies and they say, OK, we need to build a story around energy. We don't have any energy stories. So we'll build it around you. So we'll take you to our, uh, our clients. Okay. So they brought us into Exxon, you know, Marathon, Shell, uh, BP, like companies like that. And we closed every single one of those deals. That's awesome. And so when we closed those deals, you know, our design leadership was like, you know, this is not like building a game or building some college campus app, right? This is yeah. like real work. Okay. So, we have to really understand the user's problems and not just take their word for what they're saying is the issue, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was a combination of people at the company um, that came in and said, guys, we should invest in user research and not just design. So to answer your question, we started off initially as developers, mm -hmm. then we added design, then we added the user research and we brought in the PhDs. Mm. Okay. You know, so that was the journey. But once you brought in the PhDs, it completely changed the game. You know, because initially clients didn't understand, like, why do you have a psychology PhD, you know, on a rig with me? But then over time, I would explain to them that, look, it's all about adoption. If you don't have an adop adoption of the software, you just wasted millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Then you lose those clients. So That's were you guys right. able to pretty much just self-fund through cash flow through those big clients? Yep. That's yeah, amazing. 100% bootstrap. That's amazing. That's awesome. So, yeah, let's talk about, you know, some of those those struggles. And you know, there's always this great debate on uh, venture capital Twitter, you know, do you go down the funding route or do you bootstrap? And, you know, I think there's pros and cons to both. And obviously there's a lot of variables depending on the situation. But you said that, you know, raising capital was never, never a thought in your mind. You know, you just thought sales, 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 get revenue in the door. What were you guys, you know, before Apple, it, it kind of sounds like Apple was really a catalyst for you guys, you know, kind of taking you into some of these bigger corporations and allowing you guys to close some big deals. You know, before that, was it a struggle, you know, as a new dev shop in Houston, was it a struggle to get clients and, um, you know, kind of tell us some about the, the early stories. Yeah, you know, the early stories really, um, HTC, I have to thank them for some of the early customers. Um, the HTC leadership at the time uh, was looking for the startups to meet somebody who could build things, you know, for them. Yeah. And uh, so there were some, you know, folks there uh, at that time that were great friends of ours. And so we used um, that opportunity to, to get the initial customers, you know, from uh, HTC was one of the good, um, I would say, channels, you know, for us. So there were some amazing entrepreneurs that were going to HTC looking for advice and HTC would say, well, if you need a development partner, you know, Chai Won can, you know, can help you. Uh, so that was one of the things. And then um, we had some partners in California and so these were companies that were not in the business we were in, but they were in marketing businesses mm -hmm. and they had customers that had um, very deep pockets. And then, you know, as all good things always goes back to the woman in your life, right? So my wife, she got a job at Microsoft. And cool. um, one of her clients, one of, one of her managers, 
he was looking for a solution to be built around recruiting. And uh, the company that they'd been using was just not delivering. So this is when we were dating. So she calls me, she goes, hey, <laughs> I'm going to put my job on the line. I don't really know you yet. We just started dating. <laughs> Uh, but my it's boss, getting pretty serious. Yeah, my <laughs> boss needs you know so and so done, and today's Friday needs it by Monday. Can you do it? I was like, I don't know. Let me talk to him. So I talked to him, and he said, Well, my vendor's been taking three weeks to get me a response. I need this on Monday for this global whatever presentation. I was like, Send me whatever you got. And so what would have taken three weeks or four weeks to build, I didn't sleep that weekend and got it done over the weekend. That's crazy. And then and then you know Graham, who was the boss, he said. I'm sending all my business, you know, your way. Like you rescued me. <laughs> you you haven't let me down, right? And so then we got AT&T and Nestle and T-Mobile and all these different companies that yeah. were working with Microsoft started coming our way and we were building these solutions, you know, for them. How was it, you know, you just mentioned you had like Nestle and T-Mobile and, you know, Microsoft, you know, Nestle's very different than, you know, T-Mobile. But is it really, is that challenging for you guys when you have clients across, you know, these different verticals where their businesses aren't very much alike? Or is it kind of the same, you know, same process for you guys one way or another? Yeah, it's a great question. So when you don't have any commonality in your customers, then you can become pretty commoditized because then you're just offering your services. Yeah. And I realized that as that was happening, that customers started saying, okay, you can do digital, but so can these five other companies. So what's different? Right. Mm -hmm. And so we said we needed to get some more familiarity with the customer's use cases and the user's problems. So we then centralized our theme around uh, plant, field, and supply chain modernization. And we said oil and gas, power, industrial services, and manufacturing. Yeah. Let's focus the thesis on this. Right. And then we, we started doing that in 2013, 2014. And then over the next, you know, seven or eight years, we have developed this amazing database of data, of user research data and user problems in these environments. Mm -hmm. So now if you've solved something for an offshore rig for Chevron, we can go to Exxon and say, look, we understand your problem. Yeah. We can go to BP, hey, we understand your problem. And every single time we do something new, we do it faster and better because we understand the context. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're able to start cross-referencing other pro projects that you've worked on. You know, even I imagine that you could do it, you know, within different industries. It's like, oh, hey, we saw this on offshore rigs and oil and gas and the same problem solution. It, it, the solution can be applied over yeah. here. And No, you're you know, totally right. I mean, think about like refinery turnarounds, right? And so we took that knowledge and we went to nuclear power, power plant turnarounds. Yep. It's the exact same, <laughs> same thing. thing right there. Yeah. Right. And so that experience working in a refinery turnaround really helped us land nuclear deal. Yeah. Right. You do that and you can go to a petrochemical plant. Right. And others, you know, it's so a similar. Yeah. There's a lot of big clients here. So like how big is, how big is Chai One now? I mean, how big is the team? And so we're about 50 people. Okay. Uh, so one of the things that we stopped optimizing for was the number of people. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it felt like there was this pressure to grow by number of people. Yep. Yeah. And we said, that's not the right metric. We should grow the profit or revenue per employee. Mm. We like want them. people to have bonuses. We want people to have good benefits and those kinds of things. There's no point having a hundred people, but then you only have 50% utilization. Mm -hmm. Right. So why don't we get the best of the brightest and get them the best challenging work, um, but focus on, uh, increasing the revenue per employee. Mm. Yeah, I think that's how a lot of startups should look at it too. You know, I know some people will go raise, 
know, series A and then go hire 50 people. And I'm like, man, that scares the shit out of me <laughs> because you know, you're not, you know, running at hundred percent efficiency at that right. point. Right. So, um, I think that, you know, number of employees is just a bad KPI in today's day and age, especially when you're a technology based company, you should be looking at how can you be more efficient and drive as much revenue profit right. per, per yep. user or per employee. Mm-hmm. So, you know, before we start ending up this here, ending this podcast, let's talk about the Houston ecosystem. Let's tie it back, you know, to the start Houston days and where Houston's at now in terms of technology startups, because, you know, as you're aware, there's a ton of energy tech startups, right? Not just in oil and gas, but um, I mean, you know, even if you go down the road um, now, we've got the youngest billionaire in Texas and Thomas Healy at highly uh, on um, with his, SPAC um, last week. And so you're seeing a lot of movement in the energy tech space. But in Houston, you know, there's still a lot of um, dislocations in the ecosystem, right? One, um, you know, the early stage capital is an issue. We've always had this problem. You kind of hit the nail on the head earlier where Start Houston was really successful because you guys were genuine and authentic and you were founders yourself. You know, you weren't a VC shop, you weren't one of the corporates. And that doesn't really exist anymore in Houston. You know, I think that's why we've been successful at Digital Wildcatters because we come from the same angle. But what does a city really need to become a tech hub, you mm-hmm. know, in your opinion? How do we beat Austin? It? That's what I want to know. Yeah, how, do we, beat, how, how do, do we beat Austin? Austin? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that uh, we are better positioned now than we've ever been. And I am like so pumped for Houston. I mean, I've been pumped for Houston since the very beginning because I kind of see that that industrial base that is so behind and has so much room to grow, right? So one of the ways that we can be the best is if we focus on what's around us. You know, when we started Chai One, we looked around, we said there's 27 Fortune 500s in Houston. We don't have to go to Austin. We have to go to Dallas. Mm-hmm. It's, it's right here, right? <laughs> and so many times entrepreneurs look elsewhere when the customer's in their backyard. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just talking this morning to um, a VC that invested in GoXpedia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good example, right? They're yeah. taking on DNow. DNow, like, I don't know if this is true or not, but, but apparently 40% of the deliveries show up on time. 60% don't. Yeah. It's like ordering your food from Uber Eats and not getting it until <laughs> like tomorrow. It may right? come, it may not. <laughs> right. So, you know, they come in and they say, this is kind of silly. Like, we just, you know, make this thing better. When you order, I promise when it'll get delivered and it gets delivered. Yeah. Right? And go speed so, is killing it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're crushing and so, it. And so opportunities like that are all around us. Right. It's that the entrepreneurs in Houston sometimes don't look mm-hmm. at just these common, you know, dislocations. Yeah. Uh, you know, they look at, at, at much sexier, you know, options, you know, something to do with data science, for example. Yeah. I mean, I get it. It's sexy. Right. But unless you're solving a problem for somebody every single day, uh, as opposed to hunting for needle in the, in the haystack, um, it's going to be very difficult to, bi- to start and build a company. Yeah. You know? I mean, I agree with you 100 percent. I'm pumped about Houston. I have been for a while now. And I, I think that the future is bright for Houston. Because the opportunity, there's so much opportunity here. And it's funny because I've talked shit to some founders, um, some oil and gas tech founders that are based in Austin or DFW, and they're driving down to Houston every week for client meetings. I'm like, yeah, you're, why are you not based in Houston? You know, all the opportunities here, 
but you're chasing a dream, you know, being in Austin or DFW or, you know, you're kind of playing to that startup Silicon Valley style mentality, but there's so much opportunity here and there's so many smart people too. You know, just, you brought it up earlier. You guys kind of, um, you start Houston as your funnel to bring these really smart people in and then build up a team. And then you have guys like doing the VR. There's so much smart technical talent here and the clients are here as well. So there's a lot of opportunity, um, that comes from that. And, I think that all it's lacking now is some more of the community aspect. You know, you need yeah, I think I think uh, Houston Exponential is helping solve some of that as a, as a governing body. Yep. You know, so just being on the board of that and being able to see uh, not just the academics from Houston coming together, but also these VC groups and startup organizations from Austin and Dallas coming together mm-hmm. is fantastic. Yeah. You know, so now in this post-COVID world. Almost feel like it doesn't matter if you're in Houston or Austin or Dallas because you can hire people anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost better if we work together with yeah. in Austin, for example, because we do have that sister city thing going on. Yeah, we do have people going back. I mean, I have a house in Austin now. Yeah. we're going there every weekend. Yeah, and meeting people there. So people from Austin are coming here every weekend. Capital Factory, you know, took over, you know, station, right? Yeah. So I think it's time to kind of move to the next chapter which is we just have to evolve to the fact that Austin and Houston are like just like tied at the hip. Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be a bridge between the two, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think on our phone call, we were talking about one of the things being a problem for Houston too, as far as early stage capital for startups is that there hasn't been this liquidity waterfall where you've had the billion dollar exits and, you know, it made a hundred millionaires and now they're reinvesting into, um, you know, cutting angel checks into startups. But that's another thing that's really changed post COVID as well. And, you know, Jason Calacanis in Silicon Valley, he's got a book called angel where he's talking about angel investing and he has an entire chapter and it says, do you have to be in Silicon Valley to be a successful angel uh, investor? In the whole chapter, it's one word. It says, yes. Now he's gone back and he said, I think I'm going to change the book. He's like, I've done 30 deals post-COVID remote outside of Silicon Valley. He's like, I think times are changing. Yep. It doesn't make sense for a lot of early stage startups to be based in San Francisco because the yep. cost of operating is so high. Yep. So they can be distributed in cities like Houston where cost of living and talent are very cheap. Mm-hmm. And now you can cut checks over over Zoom calls. You know, people are starting to come, kind of be acclimated to it and get comfortable with it. So I think that we're seeing a lot of, a lot of changes and I think it's going to benefit Houston and Austin and Texas as a whole moving forward in the future. Yeah, and it's even more so important now because there's something of a reverse brain drain that's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Because companies like Apple and Amazon and Google and others have realized the same thing. They don't have to have people in Seattle or in in San Francisco, right? So they are able to hire people here at twice what somebody would get paid here, Mm -hmm. but it could be half of what they would get paid in San Francisco. So everybody's happy, right? (laughs) But the person that loses are small businesses like ours. Yeah. Right? Because our people can end up at those shops. Yeah. Uh, you know, n- never mind that you're going to be one out of a million, you know, so and so, you know, people there, but that's a major risk to mm-hmm. small communities that are that are growing, fledging, like in Houston, where you could end up with a lot of your talent ending up back with those big companies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, 2020, anything can happen. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll we'll see how it all plays out. But 
Hey, man, thanks for coming on the podcast. If anyone wants to find you or Chaiwan, you know, what's Chaiwan's website? Where can they find you at if they want to reach out to you? Absolutely. So you can reach us on Chaiwan, which is C-H-A-I-O-N-E.com. And you can email me at uh, Gaurav, G-A-U-R-A-V, at C-H-A-I-O-N-E.com. Perfect, man. Thanks for coming on. You got it. Thanks for having me. Yep. This is great. Cool. All right, guys. If you enjoyed the episode, please take two seconds, leave us a rating review, send it to your friends. Catch you guys in the next episode. Come, 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 come.